hope-filled song that was. Just think about these words. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Brothers and sisters, isn't that encouraging to know that your pain, your afflictions, your discouragements, none of them are wasteful. They're, they're not in vain. The Lord has good purposes for them all. Purposes for you and for others in the body of Christ. And through them all, He will complete His work of transformation by His all-surpassing power. And this life-transforming power works in us by His Spirit as we look to His Word in faith. And so as we continue to worship our Lord together, let me now draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 7 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 15. <coughs> Listen now to the life-giving words of the Spirit of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would now renew our minds so that we may look at our lives and ministries with new eyes. Lord, we confess that our hearts are prone to be enamored with cultural ideas of greatness and worldly models of success. Save us, O Lord, from the wisdom of the world and cause us to trust in the wisdom of your word. Open our eyes to see the glory of what you're doing in the lives of your people by the Spirit of Christ so that we might marvel at your wisdom and your grace and your power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Imagine a large army, a formidable army, armed to the teeth with the latest weaponry, a company of well-trained soldiers with a proven track record of brutalizing and destroying anyone or anything that stands in their way. Just imagine that. What sort of preparation would you need to go up against such a force? What sort of people would you need to take up the challenge? What sort of weapons would we need in our arsenal? What sort of military strategy would we need? Well, how about this? Why don't you, the members of Grace Church, volunteer for this task? Actually, not all of you, just those who serve in children's ministry and maybe some of you who serve at the book table. Just a handful of folks, I think, would suffice. And here's the military strategy that I propose. In the middle of the night, when those armed killer soldiers are sleeping, just sneak up to them as close as you can 
with balloons. And when I say go, just pop those balloons and scream as loud as you can and they'll run away. That's the plan. What do you think? Impressive or foolish? And yet a long time ago, a man named Gideon and his army defeated the fearsome Midianites in a similar way. And the only reason that plan worked, unlike the one I proposed, was because God designed and directed it. When the Israelites were oppressed by the Midianites, God called Gideon to lead his people to go up against them. Now, just to give you an idea of what they were going up against, listen to this text from Judges 7, verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. That's a lot of people, a lot of soldiers, killing machines. First of all, Gideon was very nervous about this plan. He was far from confident, and he kept asking God for a sign. Then to make things worse for his self-confidence, God said to Gideon, I think you have too many men. Let's chop down the number from 32,000 to, oh, let's say 300. And the text makes it clear why God did that. Judges 7 verse 2, Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And then what follows is very comical. You know, the night before the battle, God gives a Midianite soldier a, a terrifying dream where he sees a cake of barley bread, literally a, a loaf of bread, rolling down the side of the hill, and it turns the camp upside down and flattens it. And somehow, that man interprets that to mean, this is the sword of Gideon and we're all done for. Oh no, a loaf of bread! Now, Gideon who we are told is eavesdropping on this conversation, is very encouraged to hear this. And so he sends his men to the camp with these intimidating weapons. They carry a trumpet in one hand, and then a jar of clay in the other hand with torches in those jars. And then Gideon tells them, here's the plan, just, just do what I do. That's the plan. And just at the beginning of the middle watch, between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., on Gideon's signal, they smashed the jars, held up the torches, blew their trumpets, and shouted, For the Lord and for Gideon! And when the Midianites heard it, they stood up, screamed like little girls, and they fled. And in the process, ended up stabbing their own men. The text tells us that 120,000 people died, and the rest ran away because of the theatrics of 300 bumbling men. And the point of that story is that though God doesn't need our help, He uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world. God uses weak vessels so that when they accomplish anything, it is plain and obvious that God did it all. God gets all the glory. Can you imagine a scrawny shepherd boy standing up to slay a giant with a sling and a stone. What about a, a weak little baby who needed to be fed and have his diapers changed and I told you that there was God in the flesh and he's worthy of all your worship. Or a dying man on a cross, and I told you that he was the hope of the world. You see, God loves to make his power manifest through human weakness. He loves to make his power manifest through human weakness. But the false apostles at Corinth couldn't understand that. They didn't get it. They saw and assessed everything with worldly wisdom, with worldly categories of strength and greatness and power and prominence, unlike Paul, who saw everything through the lens of the cross. You see, Paul's opponents were glorying in the ministry of the Old Covenant. 
and they were glorying in all those things that Corinthian society was impressed with. But Paul argues in chapter 3 that while the old covenant indeed had glory, the glory of the new covenant far surpasses it because its glory is everlasting, unlike the old covenant that served its purpose and then faded away. The purpose of the old covenant was to point to Jesus, says Paul. And Jesus inaugurated the new covenant by his death on the cross, and he rose from the dead in power to grant everlasting life to all who would repent and believe in him. Furthermore, the presence and the work of the Spirit in the lives of the Corinthians was proof that the new covenant was now in effect. It was proof that the Corinthians had believed in that message of the cross. This was the message that Paul had proclaimed as a minister of the new covenant. It is a message that the world does not understand because it turns worldly categories of, of power and triumph on its head. Beloved, God does this on purpose. He does this on purpose to judge the wisdom of the world and glorify His own wisdom. And the only way someone can have their eyes open to see God's wisdom and to experience His saving power through the cross and to know Him as the Father of mercies is to have the light of the gospel shine into their hearts, to open their blind eyes, and to give them understanding by the Spirit of Christ. And this is what God did for Paul, this is what God did for the Corinthians, and this is what God did for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And just as the message of the cross of Christ is a, is a foolish and weak message by worldly standards, so are the ministers of the cross. They are weak and unimpressive. And so in this passage, Paul once again returns to the theme of suffering in the life of a Christian, in the life of the minister of the gospel. And this truth applies to all of us, every member in a local church who is called by Jesus to the ministry of the word to both believers and unbelievers. Gospel ministry is accompanied by suffering. This is God's design. It is his will for us so that he may be glorified, not just through the message, but also through the weakness of the messenger. Through the weakness of the messenger. God accomplishes his purposes for his glory through his means and through his methods. I'll say that again. God accomplishes his purposes for his glory through his means and his methods. In some ways, Paul is articulating what he has already said in chapter 2. You remember chapter 2? That God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, through our proclamation and through our afflicted lives, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Now the false apostles were asking, if this gospel is so glorious, and the new covenant is so glorious as Paul describes it, then why is Paul's life so inglorious, so weak, so marked with pain and suffering? And Paul's answer is, that God desires to show His great power, not just in the proclamation which is seen as foolish, but also in the weakness of the proclaimer. Not just in the message, but also in the pattern of the messenger's life. And so here's the first lesson we can learn from this passage. Number one, God reveals His life-giving power in the weak lives of His people. God reveals His life-giving power in the weak lives of His people. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now the passage begins with that word, but. Paul is drawing our attention to a contrast. But we, referring to himself and all the true apostles of Christ, but we have this treasure. What treasure? What wealth is he talking about? Well, look at the previous verse, verse 6. God has shown in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? The treasure is the gospel, the, the message of Christ and Him crucified that we have, that word of the cross which unveils the spiritually blind by the power of the Spirit. Friends, to have this gospel is to be entrusted with a stewardship. Paul and the other apostles considered themselves to be privileged stewards of the grace of God that was given to them. Given to them for the sake of the elect. And beloved, this very same stewardship, this very same apostolic gospel has been entrusted to us. To churches that are called to guard the good deposit, 1 Timothy 6.20. And to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 1.3. This treasure, this gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 But notice where this treasure is contained. In jars of clay. You know, that's like saying we have the world's biggest, brightest, most expensive diamond in this plastic bag. You know, there's something very incongruous about that. It doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. It seems out of place. Why is something so magnificent in something so unimpressive and unimportant and common? Friends, there's nothing special about jars of clay. You know, the, this term jars can refer to any earthen vessel. A clay jar is cheap. It's brittle. It doesn't take a lot of stress to, to crack. All you have to do is drop it, and it will shatter to many pieces. A clay jar is unattractive, and most of all, expendable. Cheap, easily replaceable. You know, the clay jars are, of course, a metaphor for us, for Christians. It's a picture of human weakness and frailty. And that's humbling, isn't it? We're not vaults of titanium or chests of gold. We're jars of clay, fallen, subject to the consequences of sin and death. We are finite creatures who can suffer harm in all kinds of ways. And yet the Lord has called us to this task. Why? What's his purpose? Look at the verse. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why is the treasure in jars of clay and not in something more stunning and expensive? Why is the gospel being ministered by weak, vulnerable servants? Answer, to show that the surpassing power... Now remember the last time... We saw this word was in chapter 3, verse 10, the surpassing glory of the new covenant. Paul says it is to, to demonstrate, to show that this extraordinary overflowing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the reason why it's incongruous. This is God's divine strategy for gospel ministry. Just like God used a weak group of 300 men in Gideon's day to demonstrate His power, so that it became, becomes plain whose hand was behind their victory? So it is in gospel ministry. But the question remains, practically, what does this surpassing power look like? How can we identify its working so that we can say, ah, that's the power of God at work in that weak person? Well, here's how. Paul says, look at us. Take a closer look at our lives. Look at verses 8 to 9. He says, we are afflicted in every way. To be afflicted simply means to be distressed, to be discouraged. It's that anguish of heart that you feel because of whatever hardships you may have. And Paul says we are afflicted in every way, in all kinds of ways. And that sounds like, oh no, the ship is sinking. The jar is cracking. We're taking on water. 
But Paul says, wait, look a little closer. He says, afflicted, but not crushed. We may be afflicted, but we're still functional. The ship is still afloat. It hasn't sunk. Remember what happened to Paul? Paul was sinned against by the Corinthians. He was afflicted in Asia. And here he was ministering to the Corinthians through this letter. You remember he had no peace of mind in Troas. But he was not paralyzed. He was able to move on and to minister to other people in Macedonia. Beloved, perhaps this is you this morning. Maybe you've been wronged at your workplace. The kids have been disobedient the whole week. The person you've been trying to reach out for discipling and mutual encouragement hasn't shown any real interest and you're discouraged. And yet you're here. A jar of clay. Cracked. Chipped. But you're here. You're welcoming people. You're singing the truths of Scripture to others. You are praying with other brothers and sisters. You're inquiring about the spiritual well-being of others. You are afflicted, but not crushed. Now Paul says we are discouraged, afflicted in a hundred different ways, but we haven't lost heart. We haven't given up. That's what he means. Look at the next word. Paul says, look at our lives. We are perplexed. We are uncertain. Ever feel like that sometimes? When nothing seems to make sense, when you're at a loss? The apostles felt that. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. They didn't fall apart. Beloved, I want you to reflect on the Lord's power in your life this morning. Think about those times of despair when you thought, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But the Lord sustained you, didn't he? Remember that time when a spouse died or a family member died or a child died in the womb or when you lost a job or when a family member said some really nasty things to you when you were speaking to them about your faith. And here you are, this morning, still a Christian, lifting up your hands and your voices in praise to our Savior. Denying yourself so that you can love one another. Being built up in the word. Thinking about how you can be a more faithful member. You know, as much as this was true of Paul and the apostles, beloved, I want you to know that this is describing you as well. This is true of you. This is your experience and you know it. There are people here in this room who have faced many afflictions and have suffered and continue to suffer disappointments and discouragements and they are still here serving others, praying with others, speaking the truth to others, continuing to tell other people about Jesus, struggling to make ends meet and yet giving cheerfully. Paul says we are persecuted. Everywhere Paul went, his own countrymen, the Jews made life miserable for him, didn't they? They chased him around from city to city with the express intent of doing him harm or killing him. He was persecuted. Now that would make someone feel really lonely, wouldn't it? But he says, but not forsaken. He wasn't abandoned. He knew that the Lord was with him. The Lord who called him to himself also said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Beloved, the ship may be battered, the sails may be torn, the seas may be raging, but our confidence is not in the ship. No, the, our confidence is in the one who is with us. He says we are struck down. Literally, this means to receive a blow. And Paul certainly received many of those, didn't he? He was beaten with rods, stoned but not destroyed. The Lord mercifully preserved his life for the sake of the work that he had called him to. And here I think Paul echoes the words of David in Psalm 34 verse 19, where David says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I wonder how the prosperity gospel teachers deal with that verse. 
It's there in the Old Testament. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And notice how he summarizes this section. Look at verses 10 to 12. Always carrying in the body. So all these things that he has just described in the lives of the apostles, all that belongs to this present age, afflictions of every kind, uncertainty, trials and trauma, all of this is experienced in our bodies, our physical bodies, those jars of clay, the mental stress, the emotional anguish, the physical weakening, always carrying in the body what? The death of Jesus. You know, this word death is meant to communicate a state of affairs or a process, which is why I think the uh, NASB translates it as always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus. The dying of Jesus. Beloved, this means that all these sufferings, all our sorrows, all our discouragements, all our afflictions are in a sense eating away at us. They are ravaging us. We are figuratively dying. Or as Paul will say a few verses later in verse 16, our outer self is wasting away. See, according to Paul, all Christian suffering is tantamount to death. We don't just proclaim the message of the cross. Our lives are shaped by cross-like afflictions. And why is it that we are always carrying the dying of Jesus or the sufferings of Christ in our bodies? What, what, what's the point of that? Well, here it is. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, the life of Jesus in this text doesn't refer to the life that Jesus lived from the cradle to the cross. No, this refers to his resurrection life, the life that overcame his death, the life of the glorified, risen, and ascended Jesus. That's the surpassing power that people can see at work in us. This is what Paul describes in Ephesians 1 as the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in believers. You see, Paul intends for us to see those three states. Look at the verse carefully. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted. He intends for us to see those three states as the dying of Jesus and the not crushed, not driven to despair, and not destroyed as the resurrection power of Jesus Christ at work in our bodies. This is his life-transforming power at work in jars of clay, in weak vessels. This is what Paul meant when he said in chapter 1 verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Beloved, the comfort we receive from our heavenly Father, the God of all comfort, that comfort is not just some abstract theoretical concept or feeling to be embraced. But it is God by His Spirit, the very same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It is God by His Spirit working in us through the very truths we proclaim, through the very treasure that we carry. That God encouraging us, empowering us, enlivening us, raising us, cheering our souls, bringing us the peace and joy of heaven and the love of the Father. He applies the very resurrection life of Christ to us in our affliction, so that as people hear the gospel proclaimed by weak disciples and they see this pattern, they see this pattern of dying and rising in our lives. As we suffer and are comforted, they will not only get to hear this gospel, but they will also be able to see the God of the gospel at work in power. They'll get to see that Christians don't just talk about the death of Jesus on the cross. They don't just talk about his resurrection. They experience a figurative dying and rising every day. The surpassing power of this message is at work in our own lives as the Lord comforts us and sustains us and causes us to endure. And beloved, this is not our strategy. If left to us, this would not be our strategy. This is the Lord's doing. We know this because of the next verse. Look at verse 11. For we who live, we who are alive, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Did you notice that passive verb? We are being given over. 
to these sufferings. We are being handed over. We are being delivered over. By whom? By God himself. For Jesus' sake, to glorify him given over. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, God enacts the sufferings of Jesus in our lives so that he can reenact his resurrection in our mortal, perishable bodies. And every time that happens, every time that happens, every time a weary mother who continually denies herself for the sake of her household and is refreshed by God's new mercies to face another day, Every time a discouraged pastor is reminded that whether sinners are hardened by the gospel or have their eyes open to see Christ, what pleases God is the sweet aroma of faithful proclamation. Every time He works in us, not only are we comforted and are able to endure trials in ministry, but we are also strengthened in hope. You see, in Paul's mind, the comfort that we receive from God in our afflictions when we put our faith in the God who raises the dead, that comfort, that burst of new life that breaks into our depression or discouragement like a ray of sunshine, that heavenly joy that you experience in the midst of your anxious week, a joy that you just can't explain other than attributing it to the life-giving work of the Spirit of Jesus. That comfort is nothing but a foretaste of our bodily resurrection from the dead in the future. That great deliverance. See, just as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, every time we draw comparisons between us and Jesus, we must be careful. We must be careful. On one hand, we should not be afraid to identify our sufferings with His. Don't be afraid to do that. Scripture itself does that. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 1.5. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that to share in Christ's sufferings is to become like Him in His death. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man who was afflicted. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Think about those descriptions, despised, sorrowful, afflicted, grieved. Beloved, these are states that could be attributed to, to any believer to one degree or the other. Now, on the other hand, we must also acknowledge that while our sufferings are like His, they're not the same. They are not of the same order. His sufferings were of an atoning nature. He died in order to propitiate God's wrath and to reconcile us to God. Our sufferings are for a different purpose. We suffer in order to make His suffering and His resurrection look great. And so our death-like sufferings and our resurrection-like comforts are for the purposes of ministering the life that Christ has already secured by His suffering. And so that surpassing power that is visible in our figurative dying and rising is meant not just for our comfort, it's meant to be shared. The resurrection power of Jesus' life at work in you, a weak vessel, is meant for ministry. This is why Paul says in the next verse, verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. You know, this is Paul's way of saying that the apostles died daily. Death was at work in them. For the sake of the Corinthians, they experienced these death-like afflictions. They were given over. They were led in triumphal procession into them and experienced resurrection-like comfort, the life-giving power of the Spirit, in order to minister that very same life-giving power to the Corinthians, to bring them that same kind of comfort. You know, this is similar to what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4. You notice I've been going back to chapter 1 and again and again. Because chapter 1 is like the summary, those first 11 verses of the, the whole letter. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, God 
comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Brothers and sisters, this means that we are not meant to suffer in isolation. If you're struggling to pray because of some trial, if you're weary and discouraged, if you're overwhelmed with conflict in your marriage, if you're perplexed and feeling hopeless about your finances, confide in a brother or sister. Look to weak vessels who themselves have been comforted by God's life-transforming power and receive the Lord's comfort for you. I know you would prefer heaven to tear open and perhaps Gabriel to show up with a box of comfort. That would be impressive, wouldn't it? But the comfort that the Lord wants you to receive is from that overwhelmed mother with three kids. From that single man who's struggling to keep his finances afloat you'll be surprised that He has a word of comfort for you through jars of clay. Through jars of clay. Beloved, I want you to know that your discouragements and your afflictions are not abnormal. Don't be taken by surprise when you encounter trials. Don't be surprised that it troubles you and causes you great anguish. You're, you're a jar of clay. Remember that. But also remember that God intends to display His surpassing power in you. To lift you up when you're downcast. To gladden your soul in your pain. To raise you up from the grave of despair. So that when you endure, God's gospel power will be made much of. Did you notice those phrases in verse 10 and verse 11? Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Verse 11. Always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. You know what that tells you? You know, that tells us that God's surpassing power is normally revealed. Not in His mighty extractions when He reaches out and pulls you out of it. God could certainly do that. He could deliver you, remove you from a trial, but according to this text, His surpassing power is normally revealed in this regular, always, everyday adversities that He Himself leads you into. Did you notice that? It is shown as He preserves His people. God preserves His people. Not despite the adversity, but through it, but through it. See, the power of Jesus' resurrection life is displayed as we who are united to Christ are enabled to patiently endure afflictions. As one author put it, weakness and suffering are not the exception, but the essential and enduring characteristics of gospel ministry. They're not the exception, but the essential and enduring characteristics of gospel ministry. Now, weakness in this letter does not equal sinfulness. It does not refer to our sinning. If you're proud and disobedient, you're not weak. So don't boast in that. You know, sometimes people also confuse incompetence with weakness. I won't discipline myself to be careful with my time. I won't prepare adequately to preach on Sunday morning. God can use my weakness. Well, Paul, who speaks about toiling and striving, about practicing public reading and preaching and immersing yourself in that so that all can see your progress, I think Paul would have a sharp word of rebuke for you, for people who glory in incompetence. No, weakness in this letter refers to suffering and human frailty. We are but jars of clay. It is that very thing that the false apostles took issue with. How could suffering be glorious? And Paul says, death is at work in us, yes, but look at God's surpassing power too. Dying in us, but life-transforming power in you, Corinthians. 
Now, at this point, you have to ask, okay, I understand how Paul receives life-giving comfort. He receives it from God in his suffering. But how does it get from Paul to the Corinthians? Death in him to life in them. How does it get from point A to point B? How does that work? And that brings us to the second lesson we can learn from this passage. Number two, God works his life-transforming power through faith in his word. God works his life-transforming power through faith in his word. Look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Paul here quotes from Psalm 116, verse 10. Now in your Bible, Psalm 116, verse 10 reads like this. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. But Paul is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it simply reads, I believed, or I trusted, therefore I spoke, or so I spoke. Now in Psalm 116, the psalmist is describing a time when he had a near-death experience. When he was greatly afflicted and how the Lord was gracious to him and delivered him from death. And the psalmist wholeheartedly believed that the Lord had done this. And so he did what? So he spoke of it. He bore testimony to it. He spoke. He bore witness to the life-giving power of the Lord. And what Paul does here is that he aligns himself. He identifies himself with that same spirit that the Old Testament psalm writer had. He's doing this on purpose. Remember those false apostles? They were big fans of the Old Covenant. And so he's going back to the Old Testament. And Paul is saying that I have the same spirit of faith that the psalmist who wrote the scripture had. He had God's spirit, the Holy Spirit who wrote scripture. This is Paul's way of defending his apostolic authority. And he says, look at the text again. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We, the true apostles of Christ, also believe, and so we also speak. So how does the life-giving power of God that was at work in the lives of the suffering apostles produce life in the Corinthians? How does it get from Paul to the Corinthians? Through speaking. It is the word of the gospel that Paul proclaims. It's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the message of the cross that proclaims that Jesus died for the sins of his people and that he was raised from the dead and that he is Lord. God works his life-giving power in the afflicted lives of others as we speak his word in faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the bread and butter of gospel ministry in the local church. To know God's word, to believe in it, and to speak it to others. So go to a fellow sufferer. Sit down. Open up God's word. Once you've listened to them and prayed, and go to a passage of scripture. There's so many passages that you can use to minister to them, to speak to someone who is suffering. You remember what Jesus said? He said, my words are spirit and life. So many texts. But let's go to Romans 8. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Imagine you're sitting down with your suffering friend. Let's just walk through Romans 8. Take your friend to Romans 8.18, 8, where Paul reminds us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Speak of that glory. Remind them of their identity in Christ. Remind them of their union with Jesus. Remind them of their imperishable inheritance and the hope of glory. That existence where sin and its effects will be no more. Where there will be no more tears but joy everlasting. And, and keep reading. Keep reading till you get to chapter 8 verse 25. Where the Holy Spirit tells us to, to wait for it. To wait for that hope of glory with patience. Read those comforting words from Romans 8 verse 28. That God works all things for the eternal good of his saints. 
Go down to verse 34, that precious truth that tells us that while we suffer, Jesus is interceding for us. Remind them from verse 35, that neither tribulation nor distress can separate them from the love of Christ. Tell your perplexed friend that we suffer for Jesus' sake. Look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. You can only be killed once. How can you be killed all the day long? Well, he's talking about daily afflictions. Every day, in every way, always carrying about in the body the death of Christ. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then both of you look upon God's glory, His power in the next verse, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Through Christ we overcome all these things. We have a surpassing victory. Brothers and sisters, speak these truths in faith and pray that the Lord would transform the life of your discouraged sister or brother by His surpassing power. You know, Matthew, Matthew Henry one said of this verse, Romans 8, 37, he said, It's only through Christ that loved us, the merit of his death, taking the sting out of all these troubles, the spirit of his grace strengthening us, and enabling us to bear these afflictions with holy courage and constancy, and coming in with special comforts and supports. Thus, in this way, we are conquerors, not in our own strength, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Beloved, this is how death will work in you in order for you to minister life to others. Don't you remember? The new covenant ministry of the Spirit is not a ministry of death, but a ministry of life. But let your speaking be done not only in faith and in love, but also in hope. Paul says, we speak, look at verse 14, we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Hope drives Paul's endurance in this speaking ministry. Notice how he views himself as being joined to the Corinthians in one body. This is God's promise to the church. The God who raised his son from the dead will also raise Paul and the Corinthians Together. Beloved, this great hope, this great hope should cause us to, to be steadfast in ministering to one another because ours is a joint destiny. It's a joint destiny. The God who is able to raise us from the dead and keep us from stumbling will one day present us before the glory of his presence with glorified resurrection bodies and with great joy. And this is why there can be no room, absolutely no room for me-centered, me-focused ministries in this congregation. No, we labor for the joy of one another, for the comfort of one another, for the faith of one another. We speak the good news of Jesus Christ to believers and unbelievers alike, and we do it all for God's glory so that His surpassing power may be known. Friend, if you're not a Christian, then we want you to know that this comfort, this life-transforming power, this death-defying, death-overcoming power that we've been speaking of, this is available to all who repent of their sins and turn to Christ. You see, suffering, sickness, and death entered into the world because of our rebellion against God. And even though God could have rightly left us in that state, He sent His Son who took on human flesh. He identified with us and He suffered and died in the place of sinners so that we could be reconciled with God. This Jesus rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit so that He could give us new, transformed hearts that are able to trust in Him alone. See, because Jesus Himself has overcome the grave, those who trust in Him will also one day be resurrected from the dead, and live with God forever. And listen carefully to this. And because he did that, this God regularly reminds us. Every day, he regularly reminds us of that sweet promise by comforting us in all our afflictions. So turn away from the cheap comforts of this world 
and put your trust in Christ. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. And you will know the life-transforming comfort of God Himself. Beloved, you will be tempted every day to find solace and comfort in things and places and people that the world looks up to, that the world is impressed with. No, turn away from those things and look to Christ. Look to those whom Christ has united you to. Paul says his labors are for the Corinthians' sake. He says, look at the text, verse 15, for it is all for your sake. Isn't that how he begins to minister to the Corinthians? Chapter 1, verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. It's all for your sake. But let's not think that Paul is being man-centered in his ministry. No, he wants God to be glorified through them. For God's surpassing power to be seen in their weakness and for God to be praised. It is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people. No, wait a minute. What grace? Why is he suddenly talking about grace? What grace? Through his speaking. The grace of his Words, through his speaking, through the ministry of the apostolic word, this is how resurrection life is imparted. This is how the saints lay hold of the life-transforming grace of God. And what does it produce? When God's people experience that life-giving comfort in their affliction as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Beloved, a congregation that is regularly engaged in this kind of speaking, discipling ministry, where they're meeting with one another intentionally and ministering to one another, is a congregation that is growing increasingly in thanksgiving. And it's a congregation that glorifies God. Have you noticed that those who have suffered a lot and have experienced God's grace in their lives are some of the most thankful and the most ministry-minded people? Oh, brothers and sisters, this gospel pattern of, of dying in affliction and rising in comfort ought to make us a thankful congregation. What a strange phenomenon that is. Just think about that. In a world that is perishing, there's this hidden glory, a precious glory, a light, a treasure. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel that opened our eyes. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would stand firm in it and would not be impressed by the things of the world. Lord, we pray that we would press on in weakness, looking to the God who raises the dead. Lord, we ask that you would comfort us in all our afflictions, so that we might be able to, to comfort others. And knowing that this is how you work, may we boast in our weaknesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.